Uninvisible is a support podcast that provides information, ideas, suggestions, and experiences that deal squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice of any kind. We do provide support, concepts, ideas, discussions, and information you can use to make sure that you are being heard and that your concerns are being addressed. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing, but we will be here for you along your journey. We welcome all comments about our episodes and, of course, the correction of any errors. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our Terms of Service and Privacy Policy, which are available on our website, located at www.uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Most of all, we welcome your stories and experiences to share with our community, because without you, this community and the benefit it offers all of us would not exist. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Of course, in the event that you are having a medical emergency of any kind, consult your physician or emergency services. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thanks for joining us today. We've got Michelle Sherman, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist and an EMDR specialist on the show today. And we actually brought her on specifically to talk about EMDR therapy. So Michelle, thanks for joining us on the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And can you tell us what EMDR is? EMDR, it stands for Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing Therapy. And it's a psychotherapy technique that helps people who have been uh, faced trauma and also people who have emotional disturbances such as depression, anxiety, really good for eating disorders, addictions, sleep problems, panic disorders, mm. grief and loss. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And can you tell us more about like how it works and the results you typically see in patients? Yeah, sure. Well, you, you can use EMDR using bilateral movements, which is uh, eye movements moving right to left. Some people uh, prefer tapping or using audio sound. And what it does is that it goes into the natural pathways of the brain and it helps to go into where there was a blockage. Mm -hmm. And by using these uh, movements, the brain is able to reprocess the painful events and move through them and utilize more adaptive ways of processing and the, the trauma or the blocks and come up with better solutions or better meanings or create even better templates in terms of how they could have responded so they're no longer feeling powerless or hopeless or the victim and feeling more empowered in terms of their own self-esteem and confidence. So you mentioned tapping um, and also like the eye movement. So how does it work exactly? Like, is it just a pattern of movements with the eyes? Are you using visual cues to make that happen? The it's right to left movement. So by moving right to left, it's, it's similar in REM sleep. So th it, there's a lot of research that says that that is when the, the brain is healing itself. Is that when mm -hmm. the, the eyes are moving back and forth in that pattern, that's when they're, the healing 
can continue and then the, the blockages can become unblocked. And then that's when the processing can occur and when people can move on from those difficult, distressing thoughts, images, or behaviors. So it's something that comes hand in hand with um, a therapeutic um, outline of, of treatment, right? So you're working um, in talk therapy as well as in the eye movement therapy, is that right? Well, what's wonderful about EMDR and why it works so effectively and faster than talk therapy is that in talk therapy, the therapist is interpreting Mm. more of what the client is saying. And in EMDR therapy, the client is able to come up with their own um, emotional responses and intellectual responses that fit better, that are more adaptive to their situations today. And they're able to work through it on their own while me as a therapist facilitates their healing and exploration. Okay. And how long a course of treatment do you typically recommend for patients? Does it differ based based on what they're suffering through? It really differs. I mean, some people, you have those people that come in one time Mm. and the one time they have powerful uh, movement and, and they progress, but normally it's anywhere from three to six sessions, 12 sessions. Some people will take you know, months because they have a lot of triggers Mm -hmm. and they want to be able to work through all the triggers. And some people want to work on, you know, different issues for years. But I would say the majority come from about three to six or 12 sessions. Okay. Um, And what tests do you first use to determine people's various psychological um, issues, what brings them to EMDR? Do you sort of go straight into it or do you run diagnostics um, in order to determine who is a good candidate for something like this? Yeah, I have. I do a thorough intake. It's important that the person has emotional stability, that not, they're not actively uh, in their illness in terms of like schizophrenia mm. or they're medically un if they're medically not stable, that would be a good person. So you have to really understand the type of person that you're dealing with. If somebody is got a lot of disassociating, yeah. uh, that client would be more difficult to treat in, in terms of the work. There are some EMDR therapists that work with disassociated states, yeah. but that is harder to do. Because you really want to make sure that a person, the client is able to follow you and they're able to stay in the room. Hmm. That's part of the healing. If they are not in the room and they go so far back and they start splitting into different people, then you're not really treating the the symptom at large. Okay. Um, and do you have particular diagnoses that you work with in EMDR patients that you find to be the most recurrent? Like, is it trauma, PTSD? Um, what is it that you work with the most? Well, I mean, I can tell you what I've recently been working with. I had, I have a woman who recently lost her son. She's got, you know, tremendous grief and loss, Mm. uh, depression and anxiety. And through just a few sessions, she no longer blames herself for his death. She's able to sleep better. She's, she's been able to improve her quality of life through doing other things other than you know, staying at home and isolating and reaching out to friends and family. Another client, I helped him with his sleep. He had so much anxiety in terms of the trauma he suffered as a child being in the war 
that he had uh, sleep problems. He felt very disconnected from his body as well, and he had a pain in his eye. And through our trauma work, he was able to uh, have no more uh, eye, you know, experience eye eye problems. Another client mm-hmm. that I treated. He was feeling very depressed and desperate, and in terms of his resources and through our work, he developed a lot more self-efficacy, self-esteem, and confidence in terms of what he could be doing versus focusing on kind of the problem that he was a failure. He started feeling like it was possible to make better decisions, and that he remembered through our work together and our resourcing that he could come up with better solutions in the future. It's very interesting because it sounds a lot to me like there's a parallel between this work and integrative medicine, right? Mm -hmm. That it's working with root causes and really looking to um, help patients work through those root causes in order to to seek um, clarity and and happiness, right? It's definitely a mind-body. That's what I love about EMDR. It takes... All the therapies into one, the cognitive therapy, the behavioral therapy, the psychodynamic therapy, the guided imagery, the hypnotherapy, the somatic therapy, and it has an eight-phase treatment, and it exposes the issue and the emotions and your physical body and your breathing and your cognitive self and your behavioral responses into each, each of the sessions, so you're able to go into all the modalities and work on yourself where there's no therapy like that, that I know that actually does that because so many people can talk to you about it, but they're still holding so much pain and discomfort in their bodies Mm. and they don't even know how to release that. And with EMDR therapy, that's a big component of working in the body and releasing the stress, the tension, the pain that is associated to the psychological, but it's so unconscious that people don't even realize it. And you had also mentioned right before we started recording that you work with people with eating disorders as well, right? So that's got to be one of the most um, obvious mind-body connections, surely, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, with eating disorders and addiction, there's so many people who've had so much abuse. In fact, the research has shown that there's a high... um, correlation between abuse, whether it's physical, emotional abuse, neglect, divorce, mental illness in the home, um, that these people develop very low self-esteem and it's really easy for them to develop these behaviors as self-soothing that later become self-injurious and they don't even understand why they're doing their behaviors or why they're in so much pain. So Mm -hmm. to be able to go into the mind and the body with the eating disorder and understand that it wasn't their fault and that those feelings, those uncomfortable feelings in their bodies could could have been very much projected onto them by a parent who also didn't even realize their own eating disorder, that their own uh, dislike of themselves, and that the child internalized all that and was now kind of acting that out. I mean, there there is a kind of acting it out in a sense of not even knowing they're acting it out. So it's way unconscious. Mm. And I mean, I'm always amazed by the work of any kind of healthcare practitioner. So, um, but particularly in the world of therapy and, and with something like this kind of work that's going so deep with patients, Mm -hmm. how do you, um, take on what they're, they're going through, what they're experiencing 
Um, cause I mean, this is what you do every day, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you find ways to, um, be able to like keep your work separate from your life and be able to function, um, while you're watching other people work through such traumas? I think that people have an incredible ability to heal themselves. Mm-hmm. And for me as a therapist, I look at it as, you know, really facilitating their healing and, and their growth. And that that's really up to them. And then I give them the space and the tools. Yeah. And to be able to use EMDR and find something so powerful that helps people, they actually start helping themselves because they start being able to self-correct mm-hmm. and identify the things that block them and seeing their negative responses. And then they start putting more adaptive responses into what had happened. So the rape victim no longer feels like it was their fault. Mm. The food addict understands that they were doing the best that they could Mm. and that they needed to now find different ways of comforting themselves and that they were just in a pattern that they didn't even understand at the time because they weren't getting their own emotional needs met. And by Mm. understanding that they're enough and that they didn't feel maybe taken care of or emotionally safe or in control, they can start making different choices. But talk therapy sometimes takes so much time for that process to occur on such deep levels of change where the EMDR session is speeds that up, mm. where they're able to understand that and, and process that and move on. It's, it's yeah. pretty interesting how quickly EMDR can move through a process that can take um, people years to come to. Yeah. And it sounds like it's something that you're like witnessing with a bit of wonder too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's a really exciting thing for you to watch yes. people feel. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, to see people smile and feel better. I had one client who had writer's block. Mm-hmm. She's a writer and she just was having such a hard time writing and to be able to have sessions with her and her find her joy and why she started writing and start like laughing in the session and be excited to go home. I mean, yeah, that's amazing. That's gotta be a good feeling. (laughs) Yeah. You feel good about that. Yeah. Um, and how do you, do you often have patients who come in that you feel like, because a lot of people who have quote unquote invisible illnesses, which ranges from anxiety and depression all the way to, you know, major traumas, um, and obviously physical symptoms as well. Um, are there a lot of people who come in who it seems like it's more of a hypochondria than, um, an actual, uh, diagnosis of something specific that they think they're coming in for? How do you balance the occurrence of the hypochondriac and the actual person who needs help? Well, you know, it's it's not up to me as a therapist to, you know, invalidate or validate their, you know, their medical concerns. My whole thing is, is if they have a medical condition and it's affecting them, I make sure that they're seeing a doctor or if the doctor's not helping, I, I'll refer to a holistic functional medicine practitioner. Mm. I think that it's really important to deal with the mind and body and, you know, nutrition and exercise and taking certain supplements for some people are, you know, are extremely, you know, needed and important. I think that the mind and body is corresponding to something. So if something's going on, I think that that person needs the help. In my field, where I see it is it's more of an anxiety. Mm. People have a lot of stomach problems. Um, 
that are like where the GI doctor will say you don't have these, right. uh, these symptoms. And so part of my um, work is extrapolating. Is it anxiety? What's happening during mealtime? What what are the symptoms, you know, before and after eating? Are there certain foods that are creating that? What's the relationship with food? What's the relationship with their body? How are they feeling? So they're, so my patients get an understanding of like what's going on with them. I have one client who has a lot of stomach issues and she did see the GI doctor and he, he had said, okay, we can, you know, give you some stuff. But he felt like it was more of her relationship with kind of food. Mm-hmm. And what she's seeing is that as she slows down her eating, she starts feeling better. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, it's really about being more mindful and understanding that there's an emotional reason why you're getting, you know, these stomach issues. In other mm-hmm. cases, it's very real. I have clients who have IBS, SIBO. Um, celiac, and they have to see a doctor and, and change the way that they're eating. And it's, it's a, some, for some of them, it's a real struggle to have to do that. It's, mm. they want to be able to eat certain foods and it's emotionally very difficult. Yeah. But it sounds like as a therapist, for you, everything's considered something important that deserves treatment and care, right? No Absolutely. matter what someone comes to you with. Um, which is really interesting because there are a lot of people in this community, right, who are invalidated by by other practitioners. So they're able to come to you for understanding. And um, it makes a lot of sense that they would, you know, seek a form of therapy to work through a lot of those issues in an integrative way, right? Um, I, I think that there's so many people now that have such high anxiety. Mm. Um, I'm just, I'm getting so many more phone calls with anxiety. I just think that it's, oh, we're in, we're in Los Angeles, right? <laughs> like that probably helps <laughs> the, the anxiety, the stressors, the, you know, the, just the everyday, mm. the constant uh, challenges. I think it's hard for everyone to just kind of keep up. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier too, that like, you know, we're, we're living in a culture that's not really designed for people to have a moment, whether it's an emotional one or a physical one to get sick, to, to fall back, you know, everything's about go, go, go. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it makes total sense that, that the line between in a way medicine and emotion, right? Like they're, they're the same thing, aren't they? It's that treating the mind and treating the body are equally important to you. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And that's why EMDR really, uh, speaks to that and really mm. it's all about treating the body and, and the mind together because if you don't get cleared in the body then it's going to continue in the mind mm. and so it, it and that'll manifest again in the body right and- that's why with eating disorders or whether it's drug addiction if you're not you know dealing with the root of the cause it's going to come out somewhere else. You Maybe you'll stop drinking, but then you'll turn to, you know, food or you'll turn mm. to shopping because you're not dealing with the, the cause. Mm. And so with EMDR, you're, it's, you're dealing with the emotional, you know, the body, the mind and the person, the client's really able to really, maybe for the first time in their life, really kind of experience what it was like for them mm. and yeah. where there's no barriers, there's no protection. It's, becoming more conscious so they're able to heal it so bringing it from the subconscious to a conscious level where they can really understand and and almost have compassion for themselves right absolutely hmm. and 
I know EMDR is one of your specialties, but are there other approaches that you recommend for trauma as well? I mean, I use, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that, that seems to be very effective for trauma. Mm. I also use mindfulness. I think mindfulness is really important in terms of, you know, developing more, you know, compassion for yourself and others. When you say mindfulness, what exactly do you mean? Is that meditation or is it journaling? What does that look like? It's, it's more about like trying to pay more attention in the moment, like your breath and to like what's going on, having more of a balanced uh, perspective instead of going from one extremes, really being able to stay more neutral, Mm. seeing, you know, the bigger picture versus, you know, what you want to see. Seeing the forest for the trees. Yeah. Yeah. Become really, I always tell people that if you're having a really strong reaction, Mm. chances are it's really not about that situation. So to really understand where this is coming from. Mm. I think that's a really fair thing to be looking at. Right. Um, and as a marriage and family therapist, I imagine you're working with patients, but also with their loved ones and their family members a lot. Um, so can you tell us a bit about how you integrate a loved one into a patient's treatment plan, Mm -hmm. um, and talk about familial involvement in mental health care and its importance to you? Well, I mean, especially with the adolescents that I work with, that's when I see more of the familial involvement. Okay. It, you know, as patients get older, you know, sometimes I'll bring the spouse in, but usually they want to have their own space. It's just, it just depends on you know what, what they're presenting issues. If I feel like it's supportive and the spouse wants to be of help, mm. but sometimes the spouse is, and the significant other, they're having certain issues. So the client wants their own space. Absolutely. But with a, with an adolescent, I, I'm very big on familial involvement and mm. helping the parent understand with compassion and giving them some parenting you know, techniques of how they could better support um, the clients, how they can set boundaries, but at the same time, you know, understand what the client's going through. I think a lot of times parents don't know when to set limits and when to stand up for what they think is right because the adolescent is depressed or is anxious and they don't want to, you know, further, you know, hurt the the teenager. So it's important for them to find, you know, the balancing act in that. Mm, Absolutely. And, um, this is sort of moving on to a slightly different topic, but how often do patients that you work with end up on some kind of government assistance? Do you find that that happens frequently in your work? And do you feel that continued therapy can mitigate the long-term need for disability insurance? I mean, that's an interesting, a very interesting question because when I was working for like a nonprofit, a lot of the those patients were on you know some type of disability and that they had in order for them to keep their disability benefits they had to show they were in therapy and that they were showing they were trying to get work so i just think it's it's about motivation too sometimes you know the feeling is is some people want to get the help mm. but there's other times where you feel like people are coming to see me because of getting disability. Just to fill out the paperwork. Yeah. yeah. And in all fairness, I have mm-hmm. had like several phone calls, more than several, where people are basically asking me, oh, I want a pet therapy dog or I, I want to get on disability. Mm-hmm. And more, and a lot of those patients I don't see. Right. 
Um, they don't really want the therapy. It's they're very easy to target. They it's mm. like they come in and they have an agenda. Right. They want you to fill out the forms. They want to like they're and that's certainly not as interesting to you, I'm sure. <laughs> no, that's certainly not the type of therapy I am. I think that, but I will say that I have had clients who I've you know. Me and the psychiatrist have both written letters who need to be on disability because right. their disability is getting in all areas of their life and they can't function yeah. and they need the time off and they want to be in therapy and they need to go see the, you know, the chiropractor or their, you know, functional medicine doctor to, you know, get better. Mm. So, cause there's some real, you know, problems where people can't work. Yeah. So do you find that there are a lot of patients that end up on that kind of assistance or is it sort of a mixed bag? It's really, for me, Personally, since I've been in, it's different when I was in the nonprofit world or working than in, in private practice, right? Yeah, yeah, or working when I was at like Airport Marina, where it seemed like every a lot of those people were on Medi-Cal. Mm. It seemed like there was a lot of people with those services, mm. but with the private sector, because I take, you know, health, I take some health insurance. Maybe some of those people can't afford you know, health insurance. Mm. Maybe those that health insurance doesn't have mental health benefits. Maybe the copay is too high. Mm. Some of those people can't drive. I mean, there's so many different factors. Yeah. Well, further to that, I mean, we're talking about health insurance, right? And obviously mental health is very important to you. <laughs> it's very important to me too. So um, in, in terms of people's mental health care packages, you know, when people are either on Medi-Cal or buying into a private health insurance, um, how important is it, do you think, for everyone across the board to have access to mental health coverage? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody should have, you know, access to mental health. But I think, unfortunately, that a lot of insurance don't cover mental health benefits. Yeah, they, a lot of them don't. It's true. But it seems like everyone could benefit from talking to a therapist once or twice, right? Like to get a sense of sort of where they are, right? Well, I don't even think people understand how much... Uh, their symptoms are affecting them. I mean, mm. I have people filling out like a back depression inventory, a back anxiety mm. to understand how their baseline. And some people are in moderate, you know, severe depression and anxiety. Yeah. And they're just, they're, they're barely kind of at their jobs, but they're very unhappy and they don't, they didn't even realize that they had, they were suffering so much. Yeah. And I, hopefully that helps lighten the load, right? If they're able to sort of like go back to the start, go to the root cause with something like EMDR mm -hmm. and really work through it. Um, and how do we, how do we keep that dialogue open? How do we keep people talking about mental health and normalize it? Right. Because isn't that ultimately really what we're getting at here that, mm -hmm. you know, everyone should have access to mental health care because that's okay. It's okay to need to talk to someone. Right. I think, you know, part of it is just being able to be real about like what's going on in your own community. And if you have an opportunity to speak at your own, whether it's a synagogue or a church to be able to talk to people about it or, you know, offer free, you know, services or, you know, volunteer or go on social media mm. to talk about, you know, what's going on or what you're seeing, how people can get help, mm. be kind of a, a resource for people. And an advocate in that sense yes. as well, right? And not pretend that everything's okay. Yeah. When it's not. And what do you recommend for people who have yet to enter the mental health treatment space and might feel intimidated by a new course of treatment or or feel that their needs are like culturally stigmatized? What would you recommend for people who are in that space? Like, I want to, I'm interested, I'm not sure. 
I think that if they're in pain and it's getting in the way of their relationships or feeling good about themselves or, you know, going after what they want to go after or that their kids are suffering, then they need to realize that there's help out there and there's resources and there's advocacy and that life can get better. And that just because they see a therapist or they need medication doesn't make them less than that just makes them part of the solution and that living your life depressed and anxious is not really living your life at all and that Mm -hmm. kids benefit when parents are open and they can have conversations about what's happening Mm -hmm. that's how they can get better when it becomes a family discussion or adults are able to talk openly when they have to repress what's going on it it can really lead to very unhappy people and and patterns and behaviors. Mm. And in what way does the U.S. health system, in your opinion, work for patients with mental health concerns? And in what ways does it work against their needs? We sort of touched on this with access to mental health care, but do you have anything further to elaborate on that? I don't think that there's a lot of therapists that take certain insurance. Yeah. Um, So I think that would be also hard for those people to get, you know, mental health services. And I think that there's a lot of people that don't even understand like how it works. I think it would be beneficial for each person to just be maybe educated when they sign up for a job and they have insurance in terms of what they qualify for. I think some people are afraid that people are going to find out that they see a therapist that's going to look bad on their record. So there's still that, you know, that stigma. So I think there's got to be more education around it and more self-screening tools that maybe people fill out and then they get a recommendation to, you know, a therapist on their panel. Right. But what about someone who's like, I mean, you mentioned some, you know, if people are getting insurance through their employer, right? If they don't have mental health covered, Mm -hmm. how does someone ask their employer like, hey, can I have mental health covered without revealing that that's something that they need or want? I mean, that's a great question. I, I, I don't even know if that's an additional like expense for the company mm. if they have mental health coverage because you wonder why they wouldn't have mental health coverage yeah and i would think that that further stigmatizes people to have to ask yeah because they're already feeling badly about themselves or the situation so that's where it's on the employer to really look into providing opportunities for people to access that kind of opportunities in education and mm. so people don't feel so um alone I yeah. think when you're depressed and you're anxious and you're having an, an illness, it's hard to kind of get the help that you really need. Mm. I think that it should be the employer's job to make that known and have them feel like that that's why they're working, why they have these benefits so they can access the help. A lot of these people don't know that. They don't even know if they have, you know, chiropractic care or, you know, yeah. PT, let alone, you know, mental health care. Yeah. And what about people who are like self-employed or, or purchasing insurance privately? Um, would you say like really review your plans um, in detail and like educate yourself about what you're able to get? Oh, absolutely. I would say make sure, you, you know, I mean, I, I have people calling me and asking me if I take their insurance. Mm. So I think that's important, you know, for them to review the insurance. See, sometimes they have more than one option. See if Mm. they have mental health insurance. See what would, if they could get mental health insurance and 
really, they have to try to advocate for themselves. Mm. And is EMDR specifically something that tends to be covered as part of a mental health care plan? Or is it still considered like more, quote unquote, experimental, like a lot of treatments for invisible illness? Right. Well, EMDR can be covered. Mm. It just depends on most of the sessions are more than, you know, the 50, 45 minutes that the insurance pays for. Mm. Okay. So... I see. So is, do they then get broken up into smaller sessions or it becomes patient responsibility to cover the cost? Um, you know, it's kind of, it's an individual, you know, conversation I have with the client right. to see how they want to go about it. Right. I mean, to break up a, a session that's, that's needed to be longer. I think that, you know, some people are willing to say, okay, like I'm here for, you get paid for 45 minutes from the insurance company. But if I need, you know, 20 more minutes, mm -hmm. what would that look like? And maybe that's a conversation. Some insurance companies are willing to pay. Right. But it, it, I don't know many that do without like so much paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so much red tape that it, you know, and as therapists, we don't get paid to go and, you know, fight for our clients. No. And well, and that's something where it does become the patient's responsibility, doesn't it? To, um, to be brave enough to ask, right. To talk to your, your healthcare provider and say like, Hey, what if I need extra? Um, what does it look like for you? And, and hopefully the person that you're talking to is someone like you who wants to help people and is willing to talk to them about that. Isn't it? I I like to end these episodes with like top three lists. <laughs> so I'm wondering what your top three tips would be for someone who thinks they might have something going on. Um, what would you suggest they do, um, particularly if they're interested in something like EMDR? To research it, there's a, you know, Psychology Today is a really good resource for people looking for a therapist. You can punch in your zip code and punch in your insurance or you don't if you don't go through insurance and then you can find a list of therapists and list in specialties. Mm. And that would be a way for you to start the process. Mm. You can also, in terms of, you know, research, you could find out about more about what's going on, you know, ask people around you, mm. you know, don't talk to people, talk to people who may, who can help you. Don't, don't, isolate don't think that you can just do it alone it's important that you get help even if it's getting on medication you know talk to your doctor so many people wait years without getting the medication and once they're on it they realize god i wish i had this medication mm, absolutely so it's important that you advocate and that you get the help that you don't just stay in pain mm. because if there's something wrong there's a reason so if there's something mentally wrong is something physically wrong mm. get the help don't stop asking don't stop getting the help because you could feel better mm. there's i think that there's hope out there yeah well certainly we're sitting in the room with it right now so <laughs> i mean there definitely is help out there but i guess that's also isn't it one of the things with depression in particular um is that people tend to isolate right so the onus is also on friends and family and loved ones, right? To be able to go to the person who seems like they're okay, but maybe just isn't facing what they need to face, right? And say, hey, do you need help? Can I help you? So a lot of that is about compassion, isn't it? It's a compassion and it's, it's making suggestions and it's helping people and maybe driving people to meetings mm. or 12-step meetings or talking about their own experience and or taking that person and 
you know, out and going for a walk or, you know, really checking in. I think there's too much. When I talk about isolation too, it's not just depression. It's all these millennials mm. with social media. They, they're not talking to each other. They're all like putting happy faces on their texts. And, and what does it even mean? Yeah. And they're lonely and they're yeah. bored and they don't know what to do with themselves. And it's easy to hide behind a screen. Very easy. Do you find that? And I get a lot of phone calls from millennials that are very unhappy. Wow. And is that because they've, they've self-isolated sort of by accident or is it that people's social activities are tending toward more isolation and it's just sort of the way of the world now? It's all that. Yeah. And so it seems like when they do get together, it's more extreme in terms of the, you know, the hooking up and it's like, they're not even having like Tinder, right? (laughs) Tinder and Bumble. And they're not, I don't even know if they're having real conversations or they don't even feel comfortable doing that. Yeah. It's gratification. Yeah. And so does that mean that you're dealing with a lot of like broken relationships and broken people who like have kind of not even gotten to the point where they know how to like be in a relationship? That's a good point. I think that for a lot of young people, they don't, they see, they see it on, you know, these fake, you know, social media pages or YouTube about these perfect relationships. And meanwhile, they're unhappy because they don't have them or they're not getting the jobs and it's supposed to be easy to get the jobs and everything looks easier than in the reality. Yeah. So is that something that you would recommend? What kind of therapy would you recommend for something like that? If someone's feeling isolated and not because they're particularly depressed, um, but just because culturally we're sort of rigged against conversation at this point, you know, what do you recommend for people? I, I, I'm big on, you know, young people They're you know, whether it's through work or reaching out to friends or, you know, getting involved in type of, you know, community activities where they're, you know, feeling connections because mm. there's a lot of, you know, young people who want to meet, you know, young people, they just need to maybe try harder. They need to reach out. It's not just going to come to them. Yeah. So whether it's like your local dodgeball league or your local meetup group to sit and crochet, whatever it is. Or hike, let go, hike, let them yeah. hike, let them go play baseball, let them go hear some music in the park for free. I mean, it's either, they don't have to spend money, but there are things that they could be doing. They just need to try harder because we are, we're all so kind of spread apart. And it sounds like a lot of the, the sort of common theme here is like, get outside. Don't be inside in front of a screen, get outside and find your people. Right. I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 it just, I, I, I'm a huge advocate in terms of like being outside anyways, in terms of the, the natural world. And yeah. I think it can be like, there's so much to see and so much to do if you can be in your body and in your mind for it instead of kind of distracting yourself. Mm, I love that. Well, Michelle, I think that pretty much covers everything today. Do you have anything else to add about the therapies that you do here about EMDR in particular? I think that it's, a really good uh, therapy. I think that people should work on themselves and, and get the help that they need and mm-hmm. that they don't have to suffer. And that, you know, being depressed and being anxious and having addictions doesn't have to be a way of life. Yeah, I love that. It's a very nice way of looking at things, isn't it? Like, guys, you don't have to be feeling crappy. You can feel good. Everyone has the right and the access to feel good, hopefully. Um, and yeah. hopefully we'll create some change as well and people will be able to access mental health care a little more easily in the future. Yeah. Like don't just stop, keep going. Mm-hmm. 
persevere. There's therapists that are out there that are, that care and that are good mm. and that want you to succeed. And there's good people out there as well. Sometimes you can't find them as fast as you'd like to, but there are people that are, that are very supportive out there in the world. Keep going, keep looking and you'll be okay. <laughs> it's like with everything, whether yeah. it's a relationship or a job or, you know, trying to get into different colleges. I think you, you got to keep going until you find what works. Absolutely. And clear the pathways for yourself to do that and set yourself up for success, right? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And if anyone's looking for Michelle and her work, um, you can find her online at michellesshermanmft.com. And that's Michelle with one L. Um, and she's got some great informative videos on her website and um, plenty of cool stuff for you guys to check out. So um, and if you're local to Los Angeles or to the Valley, she's out here in Encino and um, has a lovely practice. I'm sitting in her office and it's very comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks again. And we hope to talk to you again soon. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.